Welcome to Snap Sessions, an episodic podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as at interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name's Doug Nunn. I'm joined by tech meister Marshall Brown, who will make me easier to understand than I deserve, and by our artist of the show. Welcome to today's episode, where we'll examine articles from recent media. Today we talk to craftswoman Christine Samus, a psychotherapist by day, and then a knitter, quilt maker, seamstress, and practitioner of the distaff arts. Home Invasion by Katherine Schultz, March 12th, New Yorker. I've always been kind of scared of bugs. I don't like to find them in the house, and I hate to find them in my food. Yuck. It was thus with a huge amount of horror that I read Katherine Schultz's piece in the March 12th New Yorker, Home Invasion, telling us about the most successful of recent invasive species, the stink bug. I'm not talking about the man occupying the Oval Office, although he most definitely stinks. I'm talking about the brown marmorated stink bug. As Schultz points out, Of the 5,000-odd species of stink bug in the world, the brown marmorated kind is the most destructive, the most annoying, and possibly the ugliest. It is roughly the size of a dime, though thicker, but its head is unusually small, even for an insect, which gives it an appropriately thuggish look. Its six legs prop its shield-shaped body up in the air as if they were pallbearers at the funeral of a Knight Templar. Its antennae are striped with bands of dark and light, while its eyes, should you get close enough to gaze into them, are the vivid red of an alarm clock at night. Yikes! It sounds like an insect built to survive and even worse, dominate. I remember watching the giant ants in the 50s sci-fi thriller, Them. At least they didn't stink. The defining ugliness of a stink bug, however, is its stink. Olfactory defense mechanisms are not uncommon in nature. Wolverines, anteaters, and polecats all have scent glands that produce an odor rivaling that of a skunk. Bombardier beetles, when threatened, emit a foul-smelling chemical hot enough to burn human skin. Vultures keep predators at bay by vomiting up the most recent bit of carrion they ate. Honey badgers achieve the same effect by turning their anal pouch inside out. All these creatures produce a smell worse than the stink bugs, but none of them do so in your home. That's right. Stink bugs like to eat crops and a variety of plants, but they come inside when it gets cold, and they can take over houses by sheer numbers. Apparently, they started arriving in mass in 1998, a product of globalization, native to East Asia, but quite happy to arrive here. They are now a hugely successful invasive species, and one increasingly hard to kill, at least without killing everything around it. A class of pesticides known as pyrethroids, which are used to control native stink bugs, initially appeared to work just as well on the brown marmorated kind, until a day or two later, when more than a third of the ostensibly dead bugs rose up. Lazarus-like, and calmly resume the business of demolition. But what is not fatal to a brown marmorated stink bug is terrible for American farms, farmers, ecosystems, and consumers. The arrival of the stink bug in this country basically reversed three decades of environmental and economic progress in terms of managing pests. 
Sometimes an animal is built for success. Like Homo sapiens, the stink bug has a variety of evolutionarily positive traits. It has an aggregation pheromone that calls other stink bugs to join it when feasting. It has a tendency to move toward physical contact with almost any surface. And it is negatively geotropic, meaning it exhibits a preference for higher places, like moving toward the top of hotels, dormitories, and houses. Once it's up there, it's hard to get rid of. A further perversity of stink bugs in the home is that they are simultaneously extremely easy and extremely difficult to kill. On the one hand, in the face of mortal danger, they do not have the sense or the speed to flee. On the other hand, dispatching them by any of the traditional means, smashing, squashing, stepping on, means that, like good Christians, they will triumph even in death. In this case, by leaving behind a malevolent olfactory ghost. They stink when you squish them. Is there any hope? Well, the stink bug does have one enemy back home, the samurai wasp, which by depositing its eggs inside the bug, parasitizes between 60 and 90% of stink bug eggs back in East Asia. There is talk of importing samurai wasps to control the stink bug population here. But then again, there is the law of unintended consequences. You let in the wasp and you might be letting in another pass, which we would be unable to control. Bugs suddenly swarming your house, bugs eating your garden, bugs pillaging your storehouses. Stink bugs scuttle and crawl and amass like enemy armies. They have a prehistoric look and a post-mortem smell. They remind us that we are vastly outnumbered, that our walls are permeable, that we are vulnerable even in our own homes. Yes, we are vulnerable. Some people are afraid of lions and tigers and bears. Others are afraid of witches and warlocks. Others of zombies and World War Z. I admit I'm afraid of bugs and Republicans, especially those spooky ones with orange hair and oversized egos. Snap Sessions interviews Christine Samus, craftswoman and practitioner of the distaff arts. So I'm here with Christine Samus, who is a craftswoman, and she is a practitioner of the distaff arts. We'll talk about that later. She does a variety of other uh, things. She does knitting, crocheting, quilting, sewing, uh, basket making, rug hooking, and embroidery. So how did you first get interested in knitting? How did you first find out? that you liked being a knitter? So this needs a little bit of a backstory. My parents had a store when I was a kid. It was a damaged freight outlet and they bought the... So I I don't know if you know this, but trains derail all the time. Did you know that? No, I didn't. (laughs) They derail all the time. And when a train derails, um, the stuff that it's carrying in the car gets damaged and they auction these things off just sight unseen. There's a bill of lading and it has all these things listed and people bid on them and buy them. That's what a lot of discount stores have. So that's what my parents had. They had a discount store that was a damaged freight outlet. One of the things that they got in on the damaged freight outlet when I was around seven or eight was a whole bunch of store string. This is the kind of string that people used to wrap up your packages with. You'd go to the butcher and they wrap it up in brown paper and they tie it up with this cotton string. So we had tons of this, these spools of cotton string, and which I thought was just kind of interesting. It had a, a little nubs in it and had little like odd little cotton parts in it. And it was kind of rough. Um, anyway, I was doodling around with it. And then one day I saw on the Flintstones, I saw... I'm not sure if it was Betty or Wilma, but one of them was knitting. 
and I got the idea that I wanted to learn how to knit. So I started practicing with a couple of pencils and this cotton string and worked away at trying to figure out how to keep hoops on a, on a, a pencil and make other loops go through it. Anyone who knits knows that doing a, um, your original cast on is one of the hard parts. I mean, after you get the, these original stitches cast on your needle and they're held on your needle, the rest is easy. You're just pulling loops up, going over the thing and pulling loops up. That's a basic idea. But that first series of loops is really hard to figure out how to fasten. So that was the that was the thing that I spent a lot of time on and I spent a lot of time on it. So did you get any hints from watching Betty or Wilma do it on the Flintstones <laughs> or did you have to like, how do I do this? Did you have to figure it all out by yourself? Yeah, well, it was a cartoon and it was not particularly detailed. So I had to figure out how to do it myself and that's what I did. So I, I like to say I invented knitting because I did indeed invent knitting. I figured out how to do, I now know that the thing that I did was it's called a provisional cast on. Um, I did a slightly different provisional cast on where I did this thing where I twisted, put the loop around the needle and then I twisted it by hand and then put it back on. Anyway, eventually I figured out how to make it so that the initial bunch of loops stayed on the needle and then I could come back on another uh, row and and start creating a piece of knitted fabric. I didn't even know what I was doing. I didn't know that I wanted to learn. I just wanted, okay, here, look at what I can do with these loops. And I started goofing around with it. You wanted to be like William Wilma Flintstone. Yes, I wanted to be like Wilma. So when I was in probably fifth grade is when I actually started making things. One of the first things that I made was out of that really ugly nylon, neon yellow yarn that I had. And I made a purse and it was a crocheted purse. And I I made basically this big sort of a, (laughs) I don't even know how to describe it. I made a giant circle and I gathered it up on the top and I ran a little drawstring through the top of it. And it was this, this big bladder thing that you could kind of open and you know I put some change for school and a brush or whatever and I was extremely proud of my hideous yellow purse so I realized that I needed to have a coin purse so this was where the commercial aspect came in because I made a yellow hideous neon yellow a coin purse. And that went in the big, big purse. And that went in the big purse. So I made one of these and friends at school saw this little coin purse that I made and people wanted one. So I made coin purses for lots of fellow fifth graders. My grandmother and my aunt Agnes. And they're on which side of the family? They are my mom's mom and my mom's sister. They came out for a visit from Pennsylvania when I was in sixth grade and they stayed for an entire month. My Aunt Agnes did all kinds of things. Oh, as a side note. So my Aunt Agnes saw me doing stuff in the evenings. She saw me playing around and making things. And at this time, there got to be this tale that was told was, oh, my God, she's the reincarnation of Mary. My mom's oldest sister, Mary, died when she was in her early 20s. And she did all kinds of things and was self-taught. She knit and she crocheted and she made doilies and she made, you know, sweaters for her kids and did all kinds of stuff. And um, so there, that was part of what was happening 
that time, they're saying, oh my God, this kid, she's a reincarnation of Mary. She knows, knew how to do this stuff without anybody teaching her, um, which was kind of fun. And I, I know nothing more about Mary than that. But um, my Aunt Agnes, she, did, she didn't knit. And all of her stuff, was she crocheted, and everything that she made was really crude. She used great big needles. And anybody who knows my stuff knows that I like to use really, really tiny things. So that was a big deal because up to this point, had you been improvising? Or? I had been improvising, but she gave me more of a sense of freedom. I was doing it, you know, like with little purses and stuff, trying to kind of copy things. And she kind of, I mean, you know, when you're making a garment, you're taking something which is basically, you're working with something that's almost two-dimensional, kind of flat, you know, like making a pattern of something and turning it into something sculptural. So she just helped me understand that. And we made all buttload. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, it was, like I said, it was fun on, on a whole bunch of levels. It was fun around the house. It lightened things up. It was really nice. But she was fun to play with because I had never met anybody who made stuff like that before. And, you know, I liked her and it it was really nice. She made the best fried chicken that anybody on the planet has ever made. So... So there you are, you're uh, by now junior high school age or so, and yeah. Agnes and your grandma have gone back to Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. When I was about 13 years old, I think, 12 or 13, I met my friend Adrian. Uh, she was, she rode the bus on the same bus as me, and people made comments about us because people said that we looked alike. We had basically the same glasses and our hair was parted down the middle. And I don't know, everybody seemed to look alike. I don't know why they singled us out (laughs) looking particularly alike um, because I don't know that we really, really do. Anyway, so we we started becoming friends and Adrian did a lot of sewing. Um, So she made dresses and stuff like that? And around that time, I always wanted to have a bunch of clothing and, you know, could never afford a bunch of clothing. So that was one of the things that Adrian and I did together was so her and did you start learning from her as a, a seamstress then um it wasn't so much so my mom you know my mom is such a um, iconoclastic kind of person she always told me don't bother following the directions just do whatever you want I didn't realize it but she couldn't follow the directions and she insisted or suggested that I not follow the directions either and at one point I made this skirt and it was all fucked up and Adrian said well what are you doing why why did you put it together like that and I told her my mom said don't follow the directions and Adrian said no 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 you open up the pattern and you just follow the directions step at after step after step and you'll like get building it right. a model airplane you follow the right, directions right so anyway she taught me how to follow directions and she and this other friend Amy they did they sewed a lot of their clothing and so I, I didn't sew as much of my clothing as they did but I learned a lot about making stuff out of you know again learning how to take a two-dimensional thing and make it into something that basically is is structural and you went to college this is at Humboldt State mm-hmm. so you're like 18 or 19 mm-hmm. at this point that was a first time around. Yeah, I went to college in fits and starts. I was a college student and making doilies and that's kind of dorky, but I somehow I got the idea. Well, there were two things that I did. One was I made, and I actually may have made these prior to college. I made these little coin purses that went around your neck and they were really pretty. They were crocheted. There were a couple of circles with these scallops all around them and then a band that would go around your neck. Some I made a tiny little flap and found like 
pearl buttons or other kinds of antique buttons and I fastened them closed. So I made a, I made a series of these little coin purses. I also made one thing for myself, which was held my pocket watch. My dad had given me a pocket watch. So I made a little holder for a pocket watch out of a little, like a little doily thing. And were you making those mostly for your friends or were you making things mostly for yourself? And I was making things for myself and for my friends. Um, and then I'm not exactly sure what inspired me, but when I was in college, I started making cock cozies. What are cock cozies? <laughs> they are these basically doilies that would hold a set of testicles and a penis. And <laughs> so is there such a thing that's like a regular thing or is this something that you made up? No, this was something that I thought had a, a special interest. And were you very popular at Humboldt State because of this? This, there, I don't know that I was very popular, but I did make them, and I remember seeing them modeled by my boyfriend. I mean, you know, I've always just liked to make things. I mean, all my whole life, I've just liked to make things. And so every part of my life, there are some things that I have been making. I'm always making something. Right now, I have four projects that are going, well, maybe five. Right. This is particularly now, so this is many years later, but that trend goes back to you being eight years old and watching the Yes, stuff. I have always, always, always either been working on learning some kind of a technique or working on making stuff. So you liked making things, and we know this. You're you finished a year, year and a half of uh, college up at Humboldt State, and then you come back to the Mendocino area, and you got married soon thereafter. Yeah. And so there you are, not quite twenty years old, and you're already married. And what kind of stuff were you making then? Well, this at this point of the story, I mean. It- like I said, I've always been making stuff, and I remember during that time that I did some stuff with embroidery, and I embroidered um, a couple of big, long table runner kinds of things for my mom, and then crocheted little doily edges and stuff. So it wasn't like I was not prolific, but in some ways these were like Jesus lost years uh, from about 20 to 40. I was busy doing other, th- other stuff. After, well, I guess... I don't know. My, you know, I'm never really good with timelines, but the one of the uh, prolific, more prolific times uh, for me was whenever Haley was little. So your daughter Haley was born when you were 29. Yeah. And so there was a period of time after she was born. You know, little babies, they sleep a lot. And so I would, I was really happy. I was very content. I had this nice little habit pattern of a life going of, you know, get up with the baby and take a shower and bathe the baby and give her a little massage with apricot oil and eventually she would take her first nap she took two naps a day and during those nap times I well I made a lot of baby clothes and so I made beautiful little clothing for her again inspired by Adrienne because Adrienne had done amazing clothing for Jordan so um she turned me on to some patterns of things and I learned how to do stuff with lots of different things with piping and different I learned different kinds of now, what's stuff. piping for a doofus uh, who doesn't know I, I did embellishments Embellishments, okay. So I had, I made lots of hats. People saw um, Jordan and Haley, that's Adrian's daughters, Jordan. Jordan and Haley always had these beautiful little hats that had beautiful embellishments. And I teasingly said that having a baby was like having the best accessory because I would just dude her all up and put her in beautiful colorful clothing. And it was during that time period that I first started quilting. I had um, a bunch of fabric that one of my mom's friends gave to me. And I made my first quilt. And unfortunately, I don't have my first quilt. It went, one of Haley's boyfriends took it and then sold it 
I don't know. Anyway, I made a really a pretty neat blue, navy blue quilt with all these different things. Anyway, that was one of my first quilts. And I started quilting around then. And I went to the Fort Bragg Library and looked at all their quilting books. And one of them was this book. And I'm sure that quilters know this book. I don't know the name of it, but it's the about the Amish quilts. Oh, yeah. And it's um, and actually that show came to San Francisco. When it came to San Francisco, I went to the show and saw all these quilts. It was really exciting because I saw when I by the time I'd seen these quilts, I knew them really well. And I it was like seeing old friends and reading some of the things about the backstories of the quilts. You know, that's what the the that what is also so beautiful about female craftsmanship is that there's a certain sort of quietness about it. I mean, women didn't really consider themselves to be artists. I don't consider myself to be an artist, although I'm making shit all the time. But there's a certain kind of humble quietness of we're going to take things that we already have. We're going to take two pencils and some string and we're going to make something. Eventually, we're going to make something and we're going to keep our kids' feet warm and we're going to cover our beds and we're going to have a quilt that goes on the sick and dying person. And there's a there's the hominess and the humbleness and the sweetness of these kinds of things that I like to do, that it's also a big part of why I like to do it. Now, you, you've you said also that you practice what's called the distaff arts. Is Would this be a connection to what you're talking about now? And uh, final question regarding quilts. Since then, you have made a number of quilts. Yeah. Uh, you've made quilts for all kinds of people. I happen to have two of your quilts mm-hmm. in the house in Albion. And um, usually, how long does it take you to finish a quilt that might cover a bed or something like that. I don't have any idea. I I mean, I start things and then I stop things and pick up where I left off. I mean, if you look around here in this living room right now, there's one quilt that I made. That was the thing that I did. That's all handwork. And I did that. This is a quilt covering the television 30 set. years ago or something and just recently repaired it. This thing right here is something, this is one of the most recent things that I did. This is a quilt covering her sofa. And this is, um, these blocks right here are called New York Beauties. It's based on an old pattern called Drunkard's Path. It has a circle in it. It has a quarter circle in each in each block and you put them together to form circles. Or if you make them ziggy zaggy, it's the Drunkard's Path because it wanders. It can wander all around on the on the piece of fabric. All right. Um, I understand when you got married on the second time that the entire backdrop of the wedding stage was You mean when I got married to you? Yes, that's right. Yes, yes. Um, Yeah, so Matt, Roland, he took um he's so good so in talking to him he figured out some things about me and I told him that I quilted and he said oh well you know show me your stuff so he took my quilts and he uh he used them as back the backdrop for he hung some of them up in the tent and then he used them as the backdrop behind the what do you call it like the dais thing where we got married the girls call it the uh, the uh, set 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 design of the of the wedding. Yeah, but it was up on that little stage area where we all were. Um, and what he did, which was very meaningful to me, um, you know, my first husband died, and um, I had made him a um, a quilt that was it's called uh, tumbling blocks, and I made him a, a tumbling block quilt, and then I made you that small. Um, these are both small quilts; they're lap quilts. I made you the zigzag one, which is actually that zigzag one is one of my favorite. Quilts. I love that. Such a simple, beautiful, just, you know, just the simple graphic. I love that. I, I love it. Anyway, um, so he hung them um, one on top of the other right behind where we got married, which I thought was just really lovely. It felt like a way of taking my old life and marrying it to my new life. And it just had, it was meaningful to me. The, can I tell you about my, my masterpiece quilt? Yes. My 
best quilt ever was something that I started when Haley was taking her little naps when she was an infink. Um, and um, I made, started making, it's called a sawtooth star, typical quilting thing. It's a square and it has these little zigzaggy edges on it. And I made six inch sawtooth stars. Anybody who know, were they six inch? Were they four? No, they were six inch. So quilters will know that working on a six inch sawtooth star is kind of a commitment. Well, I made a queen size quilt with these six inch sawtooth stars and I did them in on a white background. So a typical wedding quilt, white background with shades of pink and yellow and pea green. And it's really beautiful. It has maybe 200 stars in it. Um, And then a a border that I was, by the time I got to putting the border on, I just put a plain border on, but it needed the plain border. And then I hand quilted this whole thing. And it took me off and on. I worked on this from the time that she was little until the time that she was like, I don't know, 25 or something. You look at it and you, it has the look of a hand quilted quilt, which has a certain kind of rumpled softness. Um, It's got some clothing that she wore when she was a baby that is quilted into it. That's another thing about a quilt is that you have fabrics that you use from clothing that's left over. And um, so you look at things and you have you have memories of, of, of things that show up on, in the quilt. The quilt that I, that you and I sleep under, it's, it's called Roman coins. It's Roman coins on one side. I usually make there's two parts of a quilt. There's the piece part and then there's the quilted part. The piece part is the fabric that's pieced together in these Um, designs. And then the quilted part is actually the stitching. I have given up on hand quilting. It's just very, 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 very time consuming. So I have it machine quilted. I have someone who does it for me. So you do all the pattern, you get it, you get it all fitted together and then somebody else does the stitching. And then I farm it out and she has a giant machine that's a computerized machine and she does the hand, the, I mean, the machine stitching on it. It's really cool. Now, you've said at times that you think your your best skill is knitting. I well, I did invent it. <laughs> that's right. You, 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 you independently invented it. So tell us some more about your knitting, uh, your knitting accomplishments. I had, when I was a, in my late 30s, I'm not sure how I got this idea, but I decided to make a list of 100 things that I wanted to do before I died. And I was, I made 36, 38, somewhere right around there, I made the list. And it's pretty cool, actually, to make a list. And I started buying books about probably in my late 30s. I started buying, mid 30s, I started buying some knitting books just to look at these things and salivate over them and think about, oh my God, wouldn't it be cool if I could do that? So I started knitting socks and then I started working with two colors, which is called Fair Isle Knitting. And I eventually became extremely accomplished. That's that's the thing that I do best is the Fair Isle Knitting that I've done. Fair Isle Knitting, you are carrying two different colors at one time. So you have one color in right hand, one color in your left hand. And if you do lots of color changes, meaning let's say you have purple on your right hand and yellow on your left hand, just because I was talking about purple and yellow earlier, at a certain point, you can break off the yellow and add pink. And then you're working with the purple and the pink. And then at a certain point, you break off the purple and you add green. And then all of a sudden, you're working with with green and pink. And you can get a lot of visually really interesting things going on with patterns. So at this point, I learned how to knit into, you knit from charts and you can do leaves and flowers and, you know, basically anything that you can put on a, on a piece of graph paper, you can 
can knit into a garment. And I then learned how to do a technique called steaking, which is um, I, I think it's a Norwegian thing. It's hard to describe. Basically, what you're doing is you're knitting in the round. You get these these um, tubes of things going. It's the best way to work with ferrile, complex ferrile designs. And then what you do at a certain point is you cut into your knitted fabric. You open it up and it makes it so that you can do different kinds of construction techniques. It's extremely liberating. It's really, really fun. Um, once I learned how to do steaks, that's when I started realizing that what I could do with knitting did not have to be symmetrical, that I didn't have to, I can make a garment that is symmetrical in terms of its basic construction, but the pattern doesn't have to be symmetrical. And it was really, really extremely liberating. And the color, working with, I mean, I have hundreds of color changes in these jackets that I've made. I have made, I made four of them. Each one took about a year to make. My best one is the one that I call Haley's Naples jacket. It's one that I made for her. It, When you look at it, it's predominantly greens and purples. Oh, there's, there's many, 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 many different colors in it. And part of the joy of these jackets that I've knit is that you look at them and in the midst of the purple, you'll see a little line of a gold or a little line of some other color that just sort of shows up. And it is absolutely enjoyable. Now, I should point out that I believe Haley's sweater, there is a knitting site called Ravelry. Uh-huh. And on uh, the particular Haley um, uh, sweater, which was put up on Ravelry, got uh, had over the 21,000 hits, I believe. Something like that. Something like that. So people look at it every once in a while. If I'm looking stuff up on, um, on Pinterest um, and I put in Fair Isle knitting or something like that, I will see some photo of my sweater that somebody has tagged and it's out there. So it's out there as a little piece of inspiration in the world. And Haley wears it now and then. She wears it now and then. When she was living in San Francisco, she said that she would occasionally, and in New Orleans too, she would occasionally have somebody stop her on the street and say, oh my fucking God, you know, where did you get this? Pretty cool. Super colorful. I love colors. I love, absolutely love colors. And I love, one of the ways my approach to color is I love to be rather random about it. I don't like to think about it too much. I like to just look at it and see what pleases me and then go from there. You don't worry about clashing then. I do not worry about, I don't believe in clashing. I just feel like, okay, that's a design element. Go for it. Now you also had an era when you were a basket maker. I did. And the basket making stuff, I've never been able to get back to it just because, you know, I have all this stuff that I like to do and there's just not enough time. There's just, I mean, you know, you come home from work and there's only so much vital energy that you have. And basket making, you need to go out and get your stuff. You have to go walk out in the woods and get your materials. I've made really beautiful baskets. I'm very proud of the things that I've made. I took a basket making class when I was living in Santa Rosa and it was... Did you say in your 20s? Um, 30s. Um, no, I guess you're right. 20s. I'm not good at that. Anyway, um, I took an Appalachian basket making class and I learned how to make basic hip baskets and hen baskets. And hen basket is just what you think it is. It's a basket that you carry your chicken in and you can, its butt hangs out one end and its head hangs out another. <laughs> and they, they have a really nice, really nice little shape to them. I would love, dearly love to spend some time doing basketry again. It's 
one point I was I was in the fall. I went into the woods somewhere and I was looking for things that would bend. I'm looking for bendy sticks out and I'm bending, bending, bending. And I get back into the car after bending a bunch of things and dragging some shit into my the back of my car. And I put some chapstick on. And you know how sometimes when you put chapstick on, you kind of rub it in with your finger afterwards. Mm-hmm. So I was just kind of lazily driving my car with my left hand and rubbing, rubbing, rubbing the chapstick into my lips with my right hand. And three days later, I got the worst case of poison oak. Oh. So I had found some poison oak that was very bendy, beautiful, pliable stuff. But my lips swelled up so big. They were swelled up like from the inside and they cracked and broke and wept. And I looked like a monster. So that's kind of one of the dangers of the distance. Dangers, yeah. yeah. I wonder who are some of the artists or craftspeople who have been most influential in your life? Adrienne is probably the most personally influential person because she's always just like to make things like me. And she's your best friend she's going my, back to school. Yeah, she's my dear friend. We've been friends since we were like 12 and 13 years old. And um, yeah, she always just was interested in learning how to do stuff and making shit. And we've done a lot of that together. I've, as I mentioned before, Kefi Fassett was a knitter that was somebody that I was who hugely influenced me. The um, there's a book called Poetry and Stitches, and that was the the book that turned me on to learning how to steek. Um, that I mean, you know, it's been a lot of books of of just simple ordinary kinds of books that have been big influences on me. Going to Scandinavia was really cool. And we should mention that um, half of your lineage is Lithuanian. Uh-huh. And um, your last name is Samus, S-A-M-A-S. And it is a, a strong likelihood that you actually are a descendant of the Sami people. Yeah, the Rainier The Laplanders. Mm-hmm. And the, these people, of course, are major practitioners of clothing crafts. Yeah, take, so a, it, take a look. If you, if you Google them and you take a look at their clothing, they're blue and they have those mostly blue and red outfits. It's covered. I mean, it's like, you know, woven and embroidered. And I mean, you know, this is there. It's it's pretty it's pretty interesting stuff. And yep, they were always working away at making everything that they had. Fane said something about me being a practitioner of the distaff arts. And I said, oh, my, well, that's pretty highfalutin. A distaff is a is something to do with weaving. I've never done any weaving. I need to do some weaving in my life because I've never learned how to do that. But anyway, apparently a distaff is this long doodad that you put the carded wool around at, when you're getting ready to spin it. And so a distaff, this this item, it was so closely associated with women that it became a word for all of the female arts. And to, to, to it refers to female things in general. And it's female and home and hearth and all that kind of um, stuff that's associated with distaff, the word distaff. But there is something about the stuff that I do that's very, very ordinary. I know a lot of women who do this kind of stuff. I know lots of women who quilt and who sew and who make shit. Um, I don't know a lot of men who do this. I don't know what that means. I don't have any particular judgment about it. But I do know that it's kind of an ordinary thing in the lives of women. I I think it's unusual the amount that I've done. I think it's unusual that I've made so many pairs of socks in so many different kinds of styles. But it's kind of an ordinary craft. And and I and I like that. There's something very comforting and sweet to me about that. 
You've said that you have a pioneer woman fantasy and you are a practice, practitioner of the distaff arts. Clarify the notion of a, pri- a pioneer woman fantasy. Well, I guess it was a little kid thing. When I was learning how to make stuff, I would think about what my little log cabin would look like if I had my drawers all filled up with socks for my children that I'd made myself and with, uh, you know, the, the stuff on the bed that was quilts that I'd made with the fabric from the blah, 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 blah. So I always had that little that little thing somewhere cooking in the back of my head of what would it be like to be just, to try to be creating a home and a life for myself and my family if I had very limited means. So I, if you look around this house now that we're sitting in at the moment, every single room in this house has many things that I've made in it. And it kind of comes off of that, of this is my house, this is my home, and it's not some place that's beige with a beige carpet and you know this is this is my home that I've worked on over time and it's got a blue wall there and a yellow wall there and all these things that I've made all over the walls and all over the furniture and there's something about it to me that's just deeply deeply satisfying and these are crafts that are sort of you've worked on that we could associate with you and that in the end then it's it if you were a pioneer woman or a basically hippie hippie craftswoman Mm -hmm. this represents you yeah, it represents me in a very uniquely personal way that has the story of my life woven through it because there's the materials of my life woven through it. And it's it's rich. It's also, again, the other thing that I like about this thing that I do is that there is a certain quietness about it. There's a certain kind of, this is my story, but you could be coming into my house, see these things and not know that this is my story just shining all over the place. It's just here. It's just quietly woven through my whole home. When we started, Christine, you had said that you thought, well, I'm not really an artist. I'm, I'm a craftsperson. I, I just like to make things. And I wondered, what, what in the end is the difference between being an artist and being a craftsperson? Or can't they be on the same team? It's interesting. I'm just fumbling as I'm talking right now because I'm thinking, but isn't that one of the things that I'm saying? I think that I, that I, maybe maybe I am an artist because the thing that I want to say is that these small things that we do, these small kindnesses of taking care of each other by making each other things, that that's what I think the world is really about. So and maybe that is something that I am trying to quietly express with all of these washcloths and socks and quilts and jackets. And, uh, you know, maybe that's something that I'm that I'm saying that I wasn't quite aware of until we had this conversation. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure and um, happy crafting. Thank you, sweetie. Remember when we used to have friends? At the end of World War II, the United States stood at a high point of world history, a proverbial colossus astride the prostrate post-war landscape with both Europe and Asia in smoldering rubble, with the British Empire torn asunder, the U.S. produced 48% of the world's goods and services and was owed by everyone who had survived the war. Arguably, there was no more formidable nation in world history. A generation earlier, at the end of World War I, the United States had been in a somewhat similar situation, the great creditor nation, and suddenly the most powerful country on the planet. But in 1919, the U.S. turned away from international responsibilities, spurning the Versailles Treaty Conference and ultimately the League of Nations. Suddenly, in 1945, America was offered a similar role, and this time, it prudently accepted. 
With Europe and Japan having difficulty recovering, America's Secretary of State George C. Marshall offered a plan whose purpose should be the revival of a working economy in the world, so as to permit the emergence of political and social conditions in which free institutions can exist. The Marshall Plan, he proposed, would invest $22 billion, or roughly $182 billion in today's dollars, adjusted for inflation, in war-torn Europe from 1946 to 52, and another $2.2 billion for Japan, or roughly $18 billion in today's dollars. The result? A revitalized Europe and Japan, able to participate once again in the world economy. More importantly, the Marshall Plan and American cultural soft power, the power of our culture of movies, music, and literature, made us friends. As Foreign Affairs Magazine put it, this allowed the U.S. to be the author and enforcer of the liberal world order that makes capitalism and democracy possible. As an exchange student in the early 1970s, I had the good fortune to follow in the wake of this outpouring of American generosity. I began visiting Europe in 1972 and followed with frequent trips throughout the 70s, 80s, and into this century. I heard stories from Brits, Frenchmen, and Germans about Marshall Plan trucks, tractors, and loads of spam that landed on their doorsteps between 1945 and 52. Granted, not every can of spam was delicious, not every truck was a Mercedes, but the Europeans truly appreciated the relative generosity and self-interested benevolence involved in the effort. In addition, they reveled in the Humphrey Bogart and Marilyn Monroe movies, the Elvis Presley and Chuck Berry songs, and the buoyant optimism that came with them. This combination of American largesse and cultural positivity gave us an outsized reputation as a benevolent superpower. Granted, we were economically self-interested, but we were also relatively caring. As I continued to visit throughout the 1970s, Vietnam catastrophes, Reagan's 1980s deployment of cruise missiles, and G.W. Bush's stupidly misguided invasion of Iraq in 2003, I was amazed at the reservoir of goodwill Europe still had for the United States. But what happens when we choose a leader who is perceived as an arrogant, intolerant, and hateful nationalist? With the election of Donald Trump in November 2016, we have seen our alliances tested and our longtime friends mocked and even spurned. With his recent decision to leave the Iran Non-Proliferation Treaty and the canceling of the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal, the withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accord, threats against NAFTA, the undermining of NATO, the promise of protective tariffs on foreign goods, and the possible trade war that might go with them, Trump could go a long way toward dismantling the American global system of soft power and economic dominance as it has existed in these last decades. Last year, the Pew Research Center did a poll of over 40,000 respondents in 37 countries and found that, quote, confidence in Trump to do the right thing had dropped to just 22% in contrast to the 64% given to Barack Obama just a year before. The sharp decline in how much global citizens trust the U.S. president is especially pronounced among America's closest allies in Europe and Asia, as well as neighboring Canada and Mexico. Earlier this year, there was another international Gallup poll testing attitude toward the U.S., and it came up with even starker conclusions. The latest study confirms some of the worst fears of foreign policy analysts in the U.S. and Europe that Trump's America First approach, combined with his volatile and irascible personality, is weakening cohesion among Western democracies in the face of a growing challenge from autocracies in Russia and China, and the rise of illiberal democracies and xenophobic nationalism inside Europe. Some of the biggest losses were among Washington's closest allies in Western Europe, Australia, and Latin America. The Gallup poll further pointed out that elected leaders care what their publics think about the United States. 
These numbers will make it harder for those leaders to publicly cooperate with the Trump administration, even when it might be in their interest to do so. Apparently, all this America first rhetoric is putting us in a hole. With the misguided expansion of tariffs from a leader who never learned the lessons of the Great Depression, tariff upon tariff freezes international trade and leads to further deflation and the crude coddling up to authoritarian regimes and support for right-wing parties in Europe. We are digging ourselves into an international abyss. Move over, Vladimir Putin. Russia has company. This is what happens when xenophobic people vote for imbeciles who promise simplistic solutions. Nationalistic slogans like, Make America Great Again, may make nice baseball hats, but as a philosophy, they are too stupid to sign off on. Our friends in Europe, Canada, Mexico, and beyond are worth supporting. Alliances and agreements we have made with them are rocks of international stability. NATO, GATT, the G7. To those who live and die by Fox News, wake up. There are strong reasons to be doubtful about the nationalist future Trump is offering. Be curious about your fellow Earthlings. Enjoy the world. See what our allies have to offer. See the world our parents and grandparents built for us. It's far better than the provincial penal colony Trump seems to be offering. Let's join together and rescue our international reputation. Let's rekindle the friendships we used to have. Make Mother Earth great again. Fellatio for the fossil fuel and auto industries. How Scott Pruitt runs the EPA for the benefit of his friends. According to the New York Times article of March 29th, the EPA is rolling back rules, also known as CAFE standards, requiring cars to be cleaner and more efficient. The Times tells us that the Trump administration is expected to launch an effort in coming days to weaken greenhouse gas emissions and fuel economy standards for automobiles, handing a victory to the car manufacturers and giving them ammunition to potentially roll back industry standards worldwide. The move, which undercuts Obama administration efforts to fight climate change, was to be announced by EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt at a yet-to-be-determined suburban auto dealership in Virginia. Apparently, the Trump administration doesn't think American industry is capable of meeting the challenge of improving mileage efficiency and fighting climate change. Apparently, U.S. industry needs special time to keep up with the rest of the world. Who knew we were so wimpy? The Obama administration had mandated that auto manufacturers achieve an average fuel efficiency of 54.5 mpg by 2025. This rule required the agency to conduct midterm evaluations of how things were going. It did so in 2016 and determined that the standards remained within reach. A big challenge, but something American manufacturers were deemed capable of achieving. Apparently, the Obama administration had more faith in American workers and technical know-how than the Trump administration does. How did Pruitt arrive at this conclusion? Scott Pruitt and Donald Trump would have you believe that there is some onerous environmentalist regulation overburdening the easily overwhelmed factories of Detroit. Actually, these conclusions were reached by the super-professional EPA testing labs of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Since 1971, scientists at the lab have been testing new vehicles. To ensure that updated emission standards are achievable and that manufacturers are meeting them, they put the vehicles on big metal rolls, treadmills for cars, and assess their engines and their 
fuel emissions. In recent years, lab engineers helped prove that Volkswagen had rigged some of its diesel cars so that the emissions controls kicked in under laboratory conditions and were emitting as much as 40 times more nitrogen oxide in real-world driving. According to John German, an engineer who has worked for Chrysler and Toyota as well as the EPA lab and who is now a senior fellow at our nonprofit called the International Council on Clean Transportation, the EPA lab really is the gold standard internationally. Did you hear that, Scott Pruitt? Rolling back standards that are workable means you are settling for less for American citizens, for its workers, and for our health. You are letting the auto industry skate along with lower expectations. Apparently, you don't think Americans are up to the challenge. Under Pruitt's ongoing fellatio for the fossil fuel industry and now car manufacturers, EPA funding was to be cut by 31% with the budget of the division that houses the Ann Arbor lab to be reduced from $108 million to $76 million. Wouldn't want to have to have real science come back to haunt your decisions. What a wussy little chicken you are, Scott Pruitt. In decision after decision, we see that Pruitt has decided that meeting with industry representatives is preferable to meeting with environmental groups, that subsidizing ongoing use of fossil fuels is superior to fostering alternatives, and that climate change is supposedly still debatable. Recently, we have found that Mr. Pruitt has become the first EPA administrator to have a 24-7 security detail and has installed a soundproof booth in his office to keep his conversations with industry bigwigs secret from those loony environmentalists that surround him and is flying first class regularly because citizens heckle him and coach, all at taxpayer expense. Recently, the Washington Post, the New York Times, and CNN all reported that Pruitt has been getting a very cozy apartment rental deal in D.C. from the wife of an energy lobbyist for big oil. What a weasel this man is. Scott Pruitt is corrupt, he is a lackey of the fossil fuel industry, he is a climate change denier, and an anti-science moron. And he does not believe in the mission of the agency he represents. Now, in overturning the CAFE standards for cars and trucks, he continues on the road to ruining our health. California and 13 other states, representing more than one-third of the U.S. population, plan vigorous lawsuits to defend the Obama-era regulations. More power to you, Golden State. May you win big, and may you drive this horrified Fossil fuels from office. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. I want to thank Christine Samus for being today's guest craftswoman. And I want to thank our tech meister, Marshall Downtown Brown, who makes it all sound better. And thanks to our voiceover talents, Christine Samus and all-around jack-of-all-trades, Ken Krause. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity. Foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again.